0: Hi Gaurav, welcome to Network Capital. In this podcast, we try and explain uh, how people do and why people do what they do. And uh, your career has been uh, a very multimodal one, and uh, you've gone on from uh, doing a wide breadth of things to finally finding your inner voice and uh, you know building a company that uh, marries your uh, passion your curiosity and your talents so we're going to explore that in the podcast could you get us started by giving us a high level overview of who you are so that people get a flavor of who they're talking to yeah
1: yeah a pleasure to be here Utkarsh. Uh, I often describe myself as an output of a very typical assembly line production process here in India. So I completed my schooling from DPS RK Puram, Delhi Public School RK Puram, that's known to be a factory to produce doctors and engineers. Uh, Immediately after that, I joined IIT Delhi in computer science and engineering. Uh, That was in fact the first time I started thinking seriously about what I wanted to do in life and the answer was pretty clear I wanted to do something that is meaningful something that has real impact and impact at scale so that was the uh, uh, that was the answer when i kind of first thought about it and at the time i couldn't find any credible opportunities which would allow me to do that at least i was not aware of those and therefore i just continued on the assembly line production after my it Daily went on to do my mba from iim calcutta And immediately after that, joined McKinsey & Company uh, as a management consultant, as a finishing school of of that assembly line, you can say. So from DPS to IIT to IM to McKinsey, as stereotypical as it gets. Uh, McKinsey was a great experience, Uh, got to work across sectors, a lot of exposure in a short period of time, picked up a set of horizontal skill sets uh, that I keep applying even till date, Uh, was enjoying what I was doing, was, was learning, was doing well. Everything seemed to be fine. Uh, but uh, as you often say, right, one cannot continue to drive on a highway just because the highway is good. So <laughs> if your, if yeah. your destination is something else, right? In my case, it was clear I want to do something that would allow me to create real impact at scale. And therefore, finally decided to quit mm-hmm. and cut out my own path, which will help me go to my destination. And so
0: that's, that's how Samagra was
1: born. Was born. Yeah.
0: But yeah. Uh, we'll explore Samagra in a few minutes. Uh, Till you finished McKinsey, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, you must have been, what, 25, 26 years of
1: age? Yeah, I was around 28 when I finished McKinsey. I joined McKinsey around 25, but
0: when I yeah. Till 28, had you experienced failure at all in any shape or form?
1: Mm, Not really much. uh, If I I look back now, then I wouldn't call those things that I might have faced till then as, as real, real failures. So failure would be like uh, uh, not not getting to a, a college that you may want to go to and so on. But in my case, that was hardly there. Uh, not So failure was, the definition was of failure itself was very, very different, I would say. Uh, now, if I look back, the answer to your question is no.
0: Yeah, the, uh, thank you for the honesty because you did, uh, you know, like uh, get through every competitive exam and you aced uh, many interviews. Um, what was the source of uh, the dissatisfaction or uh, uh, the quest of, for doing more? What was the origin of that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so there's no one one incident kind of that, that oriented me towards, uh, towards impact work. As I said, when I first started thinking about it during my IT days, uh, from then itself, uh, I, I started feeling that I want to do something that that has a real uh, impact uh, at a certain scale, and that was also a time when, when uh, uh, a lot of positive buzz in the country around the telecom revolution, around highways getting built, around I don't know Tata acquiring chorus and so on, and so forth. It was a time where there was a kind of an economic boom of sorts, and you hear, you heard a lot of positive stories, and and I felt that governance, politics, these are instruments of real change. But to your question around where the seed was sown, I would say might have been some time in my childhood. Uh, again, no one incident, but I, everyone around me, my, my, especially my father, has been kind of very socially active uh, all his life, always talking about the society, always talking about people around us, through different organizations, local organizations, social organizations. But the orientation since childhood had been towards society. I think that's where the seed was sown. Uh, But yeah, as far as I'm concerned, more consciously from my undergrad days.
0: Um, So talk to us about uh, the initial days of setting up Samagra. What was the hypothesis? Um, How did you, you know, start from the idea to actually Mm -hmm. launching the company? Talk me through the initial conversation that you were having with yourself and your friends.
1: Yeah. So I think the first thing I did about uh, when I quit McKinsey was to travel across the country for six months. Uh, So that was my own version of my Bharat Darshan, so to say. Uh, And that essentially involved doing three things. One, I made a list of some 25 different organizations which were known to be doing good work in different sectors. uh, uh, In health, in, in agriculture, livelihood, education and so on. So I would meet their founders, their leaders in Delhi, Bombay, Bangalore, wherever they were headquartered, understand what the model is. And I would ask them typically, where are you doing good work? Tell me one place in the country where you feel this is your showcase model. I would go there and stay for a few days. So just as an example, I met Pradhan, which is an organization that works in in livelihood. Uh, met, 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 met their leadership team. And they said, we're doing outstanding work in Gauta in Jharkhand and Dhalpur in Rajasthan. So I said, okay, I'll visit both these places and spend a few days there. This I did for 25 different organizations. That was one part of uh, those right. six months. The right. second was I wanted to understand how the wheels of governance really move on the ground. Uh, so growing up in Delhi, you don't really interact with administration as much, other than the police, probably, uh, right? Uh, so I wanted to know how do how do how do the wheels move on the ground. So I shadowed a bunch of district level officials and and below, so district collectors, patwaris, number municipal commissioners. Uh, medical officers and so on so forth and all by cold calling reaching out to one contact then through them another through them another so did a lot of that across different states so which was a really uh, eye-opening experience I would say and third just uh, uh, made a list of some 15 odd MPs members of Parliament who are known to be doing good work Uh, and just cold called them and said I want to understand you you seem to have done good work in your constituency I want to kind of come and see so either them or their teams would kind of facilitate, and I would go and study what they have done there. So all of it put together was roughly around spending, you can say, at least a night in seventy odd districts in the country and visiting around seventeen different states in that short period of time. To me, that was my orientation, and that's what crystallized the idea for samagra uh, And it was a, it was three key learnings I had to pick up there. One was. It was a humbling experience, right? You saw that, okay, you are you are young, fresh, you want to contribute, but there are people who spend their lifetime kind of trying to contribute in some shape and form. So it was a humbling experience. Uh, a Second, it also helped get out of, in some ways, the McKinsey bubble, right? Because you're kind of uh, there, you're working with the corporate, you're just seeing a certain percentage of, of the entire world and you believe that's the full world. But when you come out of it and you really spend time on the ground, you really understand uh, that there's life beyond, beyond the corporate world. Uh, and third, it was a lot of learning, uh, immense amount of learning. So all of it put together, Kisply, as I said, the idea of Samagra, and then that's when uh, Samagra took shape. With the core okay. thesis being a better governance as a lever to create large-scale impact. You want to believe that you can do a whole bunch of things outside of the system, but you want to reach millions and millions of people and transform their lives. You cannot wish away the political and the governance
0: Yeah. Trust. So, uh, Gaurav, Engineering MBA McKinsey uh, does buy you enough insurance for life, right? Like, uh, you would have thought that, you know, even if uh, this program or this company doesn't work, I still have, uh, you know, my quote unquote insurance to go back to. Was that at all in your mind? And were you financially
1: secure by the time you were 28? Uh So definitely not financially secure. Uh, uh, but yes, this whole thing around if nothing works out in the worst case scenario, then you still have your quote-unquote, your degrees and your uh, and your uh, uh, basic capability that will allow you to earn a living, right? That's always the case. So from that definition, yes, the insurance was there, but not at all uh, uh, from a point of view of being financially secure. In, in, in fact, the first two years at Samagra were really, really tough. Uh, in the sense, there was a time when when uh, uh, there was there was lack of visibility in terms of where this is headed, you uh, right. we were professionally not sure about what you are doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, financially, uh, there was actually zero revenues, and, and I was in fact investing from whatever little savings I had. That mm-hmm. was kind of uh, uh, going into Samagra. Uh, no one else in the family was actually uh, earning. My father had just retired, uh, mm-hmm. so we were actually eating on savings in the family as well. Uh, and there's some unfortunate things on the personal side also that had happened in the time. Uh, so all of it put together was pretty tough. Uh, and in fact, on all aspects of life, not, I was at rock bottom. And there the thinking was that if we can come out of this any which way, then anything is possible in life. So it was pretty tough in the first two two and and a half years. Uh, right. yeah. But to the extent, yes, that education... Uh, uh, buys you a uh, certain insurance to that extent yes that confidence was always there if nothing works out we'll figure out something
0: got it got it um so the first two years of uh, samagra what wasn't working and why
1: yeah so we actually started off by working with MPs, members of parliament and supporting them with different aspects of constituency development. The thought process was that there are 543 constituencies in the in the country, Lok Sabha constituencies. If each one of them can be transformed, then the country can be transformed. And therefore, it's a good idea to work with MPs uh, and help them facilitate development in the region that they're getting elected from. So that was the model. Uh, and we would work with uh, MPs across party lines, across states, and so on. Uh, but net net, there were various limitations to that model. And and the three learnings that we acquired in the first two years were were the following. One uh, one was around just the sheer unit of change. What should be a unit of change? Uh, We now firmly believe that the role of the Government of India is to uh, get focus on the right areas, incentivize, uh, provide funding in some cases, basically create an enabling environment. The role of the districts where we were operating at, because when you work with MPs, we also closely work with the district administrations, that's largely implementation. It's the, it's the state, uh, state as a unit, uh, where there's a lot of scope to kind of, a lot of scope for creativity to design new programs, to conceptualize uh, transformations and also have a very direct control on implementation because the districts are reporting to the state and not to the government of India. So state as a unit of change was a big learning and probably we were focused at, a, at, the, at, a, at, at not the correct place when we were working with constituencies. Right. So now we have a firm belief that if India has to transform, it has to happen state by state by state. There's no magic wand that will do it in one go across the country. So that right. was one big learning. The second one was that maybe MPs were not the right uh, uh, stakeholders to work with. In the scheme of things, And at least what we wanted to do, uh, which was around transforming governance, uh, MPs are in some sense, Ruthless, right? To put it a little harsh, uh, uh, right? because their role is largely to create laws uh, that is through the parliament and keep, keep an oversight on the executive. That's what we read in civics uh, in school, but somewhere we kind of, uh, it was, uh, we had to experience it to, uh, uh, to understand that better. Uh, and that also, there also the role is diminished because of the whip system and other things. And secondly, they have no executive authority, right? So they have influence. They can influence the government. They can influence the district collector and so on to do certain things, but no direct authority to do. So for us, it was important that we work with the executive as opposed to with the legislature wing of the democracy, which meant the the ministers and the bureaucracy. So that was a second big uh, learning. And third was just financially as a a model. Uh, uh, There's no way that MPs could compensate for the professional services that we were providing the MPs that we were working with were actually writing checks to us from their personal accounts now that's not a fair expectation and not many MPs can do that either uh, so therefore from a business model perspective also it was not a good idea whereas if you work with the state then there are different ways in which funding etc can be figured out so right the major learnings and that led to a pivot subsequently.
0: This is very interesting uh, a lot of people want to work uh, in the policy space uh, they'd benefit from uh, this particular insight tell us about how did you think about repivoting and what were some of the steps that you took to arrive at the new operating as well as new business model
1: yeah yeah so the pivots were uh, twofold primarily one is working with the executive as opposed to the legislature and the second one was working with the states as opposed to working with districts slash constituencies or even for that matter, government of India. Uh, So these were the two pivots. And what we do now for the last four to five years is to work with the political and the bureaucratic leadership in the states. And this is typically a combination of a chief minister and an empowered bureaucrat in the state, typically a principal secretary. So a combination of a chief minister and a principal secretary on systemic transformations and I'll explain that in a moment, across different domains of governance, such as school education, agriculture, skill development, uh, uh, employment, service delivery, governance reforms, and so on. So that's what we do. Uh, And when I say systemic transformations, uh, it really means that what we are not interested in or what we are not focused on is point intervention that will yield some short-term benefit. But instead, we are looking at that particular domain in the state as a system and you want to take that system from point a to point b over a period of 2 to 3 years so i can just explaining to an example let's say we are talking about school education transformation where the objective let's say is to improve learning outcomes across all the 50000 government schools in a state let's say that's okay. the mandate so sure. what we what we will not do is to say okay let's focus on teacher training and that's the one thing that will solve for it instead we look at look at school uh, education as a system and it's always a combination of administrative interventions on one side and technical on the other a combination of which leads to a movement in the system uh, in terms of improvement of learning outcomes so on one side we'll talk about things like what's the right configuration of schools in the state Uh, how do you make sure there's merit-based selection of teachers how do you make sure there's a transparent teacher transfer policy so that they are not running behind mlas to get transfers done how do you build an accountability for learning outcomes so all these are managerial or administrative interventions on the other side we are talking about things like what's the right curriculum What's the right teacher learning material? What's the right uh, uh, mentoring framework? How should assessments or examinations happen in the state? So it's the combinatorics of this uh, uh, these administrative and academic interventions together that lead to an improvement in the system and improvement in learning outcomes. So that's the lens that we take across all our engagements. So it's a very systems thinking approach or a systemic transformation approach as opposed to a point intervention approach.
0: Yeah. Uh, how do you decide the KPIs,
1: and uh, who pays you? Yeah, uh, so we get in pretty early uh, in all of our programs when there's an abstract idea that the state has that we want to do something in agriculture, we want to do something in towards quality of education. So in the beginning itself, we define a very clearly defined, very sharply defined, articulated and measurable goal. For example, we'll say we want X percentage of students across all the government schools in the state to become grade level competent. or We want incomes of farmers to go from X to Y over the next three years. So we define the goal. We actually start off by defining the goal jointly with the political and the bureaucratic leadership in the state. Then we diagnose what's the current situation over a couple of months. Another couple of months we take jointly to come up with a multi-year roadmap of how that thing can be transformed uh, in the state. And then over a period of two years or three years, literally co-work with the state leadership to catalyze the implementation of that roadmap. So that's how the entire cycle looks like. We are there from the very beginning to from defining the goals till the very end to uh, 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 make sure that the benefit or the impact is delivered on the ground. Uh, and it actually starts by defining the KPI that you are uh, uh, asking for. So that's the model. In terms of who pays us, right? Uh, so. One thing that we're very clear on: we don't participate in government tenders or requests for proposals or RFPs and so on. And there are and two reasons for doing time. that.
0: Some of our li- some of our listeners, actually, many of our listeners, are not from India, so they yeah. perhaps would want to understand.
1: Yeah. So we don't uh, we don't participate in any government uh, 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 tenders. So tender is when the government wants a private entity to come and support with something. We don't participate in that. There are two reasons for it. One, the nature of work that we're doing is difficult to capture in a tender document. Uh, It's very difficult to say these are the 10 steps to be taken to transform school. I'm just picking school education as a proxy uh, because that's the example that we've been talking about. So it's very difficult to say these are 10 things to be done and you'll kind of improve learning outcomes in the entire state. That's very difficult. Uh, So it's not quote unquote tenderable uh, in one, uh, in some sense. So, So that's one reason. The second is also, once, you, once the government quote-unquote hires you, then the relationship t- tends to become that of a client and a vendor. And that's not the relationship that's conducive for impact. We want really to be working as thought partners with the government, uh, and that's where we maximize the chances of impact. Uh, therefore, we don't participate in these tenders. Instead, what we do is once there's alignment with the state leadership on what needs to be achieved, we put the onus on the government to figure out a private source of our funding our fee or paying our fee so we don't want to be saying that okay we are coming in and we'll get the fee ourselves or we'll get the funding ourselves i spend zero time almost on fundraising almost zero uh, that's the more uh ngo model uh because we don't want to say we'll get everything because then the attitude becomes okay you know they don't have a skin in the game and they say okay please go ahead and and try whatever you can we want them to have a real skin in the game and for that we put the onus on them to figure out a private source of funding so these are, most of our engagements are funded through international philanthropies like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Michael and Suzanne Dell Foundation, some CSR, corporate social responsibility money, and so on and so forth. So that's the uh, uh, business model, so to say. A complete uh, ownership by the government, a skin in the game, but also not getting paid by the government directly. Uh, that's our obvious structure. And I'm one sure. more important point, Rutkash, I'll add here is that we would never go to a government and say, this is what can be done. It's an extremely pull-based model. In all of the work that we're doing today, the government has first approached us to say, this is what we want to do. And can you guys help uh, with this? And that's very, very important to us. We choose our situations very, very carefully. Uh, and it's not about any of this thing that we don't want to be approaching and or anything of that. So just that when the government approaches, it means they really want to do it. They really want to uh, transform, they're really interested in that particular uh, domain and so on. So the, the first move is made by the government and after that also we look for two, three things before we say yes. One is we look for a political will. So at the very top, the chief minister has to really back that particular reform and say we want to do this. And secondly, a an empowered and capable bureaucrat who's who's there to kind of drive this on behalf of the government if we see these things fall in place and also certain distance from elections, we don't want to get into a state when it's one year into elections or so on. So certain distance from elections, uh, empowered bureaucrat and a political will and the first move made by the government, once all these conditions are met, that's when we sign up and say, okay, let's do it together. And that's, I think one of the important uh, criteria for us and that, that helps a lot.
0: Um, Could you tell me about uh, a couple of uh, pleasant and unpleasant surprises that you have encountered while working with uh, the state machinery or the government
1: machinery? Hmm. Hmm. So one thing that uh, uh, comes uh, in the way, which is you can say an occupational hazard, but which which happens is the change in the leadership. So there's a part of it which is change in the political leadership. But that happens once every five years. Uh, and we, in any case, can time around it. As I said, we won't get into a state which is one year into elections. But what is not in anyone's control, what is not in our hands, is when the bureaucratic leadership changes. So the key person, the key bureaucrat who's driving the thing in the state along with you, if that person changes, then it tends to uh, affect the overall uh, program. And that hop- happens actually fairly Uh, Often it can happen between six months, 12 months, 18 months. There's no time of of transfers in in the bureaucracy. Uh, One safeguard against that is if it's a real priority for the political leadership, they will not transfer the bureaucrat. But again, uh, there are so many factors at play that it does happen, and therefore it, it kind of and then you are caught in a situation where you are checked for that pull up front, and that's when you got into the situation, you kick started something. You put all effort energy behind it and then you suddenly see the, uh, the CEO or the leadership kind of uh, change and the new leader may not be as enthusiastic and so on. So this has happened with us in a couple of cases uh, and that really kind of uh, becomes a, a setback. You don't want to pull out at that point in time. At the same time, you don't get the same effort uh, energy uh, that is required for it. So this is one uh, what we call
0: deal with this, because I imagine that you have zero control over changing the machine. Um,
1: And how does it affect your revenue stream, if at all? It doesn't really affect the revenue stream per se, because the money is coming from a private entity, uh, which is usually long term contracts and all. Uh, So it's not about revenue stream getting affected, but it's about the pace of work and the the, uh, uh, change management that you are kind of in the middle of, that getting affected. Uh, There's no way to safeguard against it. The only thing you can do is uh, just keep on making sure that it's the topmost political priority, what you're doing. And therefore, uh, uh, the, the bureaucrat who's leading it is not kind of transferred. That's one Uh, And second is once you have a certain runway with with a good bureaucrat in the beginning, let's say 9 to 12 months, then you embed the entire transformation program into the system. So the system starts owning it. The the mid-level officers, the district level officers, the block level officers, the entire system starts owning it. And then even if some leadership change happens, the program sustains. Uh, uh, And that's what we really shoot for. We shoot for that runway of 9 to 12 months with a good bureaucrat in the beginning and then. Uh, when then we are fine just a case in point is for example himachal pradesh which is a state that we have been working in for almost 4 years now uh, there uh, there was a kind of 2 year window when the principal secretary of education changed there six different people who came over a period of 2 years six different heads of the uh, uh, education department right but before that we had spent 1 year in the state this program had been really absorbed and owned by the uh, by the entire uh, Uh, system and therefore this we could tide over this change uh, of leadership but sometimes it tends to become difficult
0: understood Um, how do you um, achieve a sync with the overall ecosystem because uh, uh, you know think of Porter's five forces in business Um, what are the equivalent five forces in say development and how do you engage them all and do you actually need all of them to come on board?
1: Uh, I think the some things that some forces that become uh, uh, critical here. I would I just if I had to prioritize, what are the uh, uh, key success factors, so to say, in the kind of work that we do? One clearly is the political will. Uh, that is so so important because the kind of reforms that we are talking about almost always either are hitting some vested interests at scale or uh, uh, are politically sensitive. Even something that seems as this thing straightforward as education, in terms of political sensitivity, once you get a trans, uh, let's say a transparent teacher transfer policy in the state, that means that the teachers will not be running behind MLAs to get transfer done. Therefore, you're killing an entire patronage network which has thrived over decades, right? So when that gets introduced, there's a lot of backlash from the ground that comes in media, in in from the system and so on, and that's the time when the chief minister really needs to take a stance and say, "No, I'll go ahead and do this." Right. So, in each of our programs, you will see there's something or the other of this kind that is there. So, political will is extremely critical, and somehow you have to choose. You cannot create that political will. You can influence it to some extent, but you can choose whether you uh, uh, whether you want to get into a situation and you see that or not. That that's one critical thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say the second thing. Uh, uh, is around change management, uh, which is very critical because these are massive systems. You're talking about, for example, we are working in UP, Uttar Pradesh now, which is the largest state in the country on uh, uh, education. So it's 110,000 schools, some 400,000 teachers, some 12 million kids. So when you're making that kind of change, uh, transforming that bigger system, change management becomes very, very critical. And that's where we have developed a lot of internal frameworks and internal uh, mechanisms of how do you do that. How do you make things simple for people on the ground? How do you create heroes in the system, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Uh, so that's the uh, uh, second critical element. Uh, the third one is again this uh, bureaucratic leadership, which we have already uh, discussed. And the fourth and the again very important one is around uh, designing solutions in the context of governance realities. So that's a big point. Uh, uh, a lot of times in the impact domain, it's easy to come up with solutions that look good on PPT. Uh, but once you implement them they look very logical also once you implement them they're no takers so how do you uh, uh, keep the governance realities on the ground in mind uh, uh, while designing solutions i think that's one of the core uh expertise so to say that we have kind of developed over the years so these are the four key things in terms of your business forces we're talk- talking about the business uh, this thing then one thing that one of the porters five minutes competition right, right. Uh, competition in our case is is that we, that's the last thing actually that, that we ever discuss or talk about mm-hmm. uh, because if you look at, and I'm digressing a little bit here. If you look at the consulting landscape, mm-hmm. uh, there, there are three broad verticals of consulting the way I look at it. There's the corporate consulting where the yeah. key client is the corporate. There's what we call social sector consulting where the key client is either a multilateral a World Bank or ADB or DFID. Or a foundation of a corporate, a, I don't know, a Reliance Foundation or Mahindra Foundation and so on. So that's social sector consulting. And the third is governance consulting where the key client is the government. Right? Yeah. So that's the three verticals. And then there are three horizontals which you can say tiers of consulting firms. Right? So there's a tier one consulting firm, tier two, tier three. And that's a function of how abstract the problem statement you're dealing with is. And therefore, consequently, who on the client side are you working with? Are you working with the CEO? Are you working with the regional head, and so on, from a corporate analogy? Right. So very clearly, uh, as far as Samagra is concerned, we are in the third vertical, which is governance consulting. 100% of the work is with governments. There's no work that we do with multilaterals or foundations, and uh, and so on. All the work is with the government. And yeah. second, it is clearly in the falls in the tier one category where you are working on really abstract, open-ended problem statements. Uh, uh, how do you improve the quality of education, how do you improve farmer's income, how do you transform scheme services delivery. So very open-ended problems. So if you look at that intersection and that cell, we are we are one one player in India in that, and the only other player is is the public and the social sector practice of BCG, the Boston mm-hmm. Consulting Group. So they're the, they're the only other people that we see operating in that domain. Right. So, but and this a, way, you are
0: also in a sort of a blue ocean, right? You're not competing for minor differences with other
1: Exactly. Men. The pie is so big, there's so much to be done. Uh, then, if there are 10 more Samagra also. Then also it's kind of uh, we believe uh, not sufficient to kind of.
0: uh, No, I like the fact that you know like you're like it's a blue ocean and that you're uh, you're trying to create a market and solve a social problem. You know, one really exciting trend that I see on network capital is the sheer number of people Hmm. who get excited by uh, you know Samagra and the like or you know similarish organizations in India abroad. Um, So there's a clear. Uh, emerging trend amongst millennials to find work that's meaningful mm-hmm. and I'd like to congratulate you to have uh, you know built a young dynamic team and attract uh, the right set of people even a few days back when you did the master class in network average premium the sheer number of questions that came before and after it was just a pleasant surprise mm-hmm. talk to me about talent who do you want Uh, at Samagra and how can people make a strong case to uh,
1: work there yeah that's a good topic overall Uh, so just to kind of set the context for this uh, today the thing that kind of occupies our uh, leadership uh, uh, mindshare is not about how do you expand work this enough and more pull for the work that we're doing this enough and more uh, uh, governments reaching out for the transformations that they want to do. The real problem statement is how do you supply? How do you how do you kind of service these requests? And for that, you need to kind of scale the team without compromising on the quality of what you're doing. So the re- real biggest problem statement for us today is actually talent. Uh, uh, and on one hand, there is a large, you know, huge amount of applications that we get in terms of uh, interest from youngsters and, and so on. At the same time, we believe that that we are not able to kind of uh, uh, recruit in requisite numbers, uh, uh, and and that's the real uh, uh, problem statement to kind of solve for. To your question around what is it that we are looking for, uh, I think firstly what we are not looking for is any experience in the development domain or 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 or, or governance and any knowledge of that. That's mm-hmm. the last thing that we're looking for. We don't expect people to have had experience in this domain, even if they do. That's not what we are. Uh, that's not a real plus plus in any which way. What we are looking for is certain uh, uh, horizontal skill set, which we believe will will come in handy in the kind of work that you're doing. So the ability to structure uh, problem statements, the ability to think uh, 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 practically, the ability to think with a, with a heavy dose of, let's say, common sense, right? That's what we are looking for. We are looking for structured communication, both written and oral. Uh, we are looking for the ability to work with a diverse set of, stakeholders and people uh, and across hierarchy uh, very senior folks at the same time mid-level at the same time ground uh, uh, this thing so stakeholder uh, ability to work with people so that's the skills that we are looking at the other thing we're looking at is a very deep uh, uh, desire to create impact uh, through governance right that's important because a lot of times when you're working with the government uh, uh, one trait that is required is perseverance and that comes from from your whole innate uh, desire to create impact. That's what keeps you going. So we're really looking for that passion for uh, uh, impact. And of course, then a whole bunch of things in terms of attitude, in terms of learning fast, in terms of uh, 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 just picking up things and, and, and having the right kind of mental makeup uh, to be able to uh, uh, get new uh, content, get uh, adapted in new situations and so on. So those are the things essentially we're looking at. We're not looking for any past experience, which is into governance or social sector.
0: Which is great. Um, You also have a particular selection methodology, right? What do you, uh, you gave a brief overview just now, Mm -hmm. uh, but, Often people call us uh, before interviews with you to figure out, uh, you as in Samagra, to figure out like how to, what should be a best practice to answer such questions, Uh, but let's hear it from you. Like, what candidate delights you? Of course, there's energy and enthusiasm, but in terms of uh, the skills and analytical ability, what kind of candidate do you really look forward to and how should people uh, express this best in their application?
1: Specifically,
0: I'm asking about uh, uh, some written work that you all uh, mm. make people do. Just talk to us in detail about it.
1: Yeah. So there are four steps in our recruitment process. Step number one is when you submit your CV and you answer a couple of uh, kind of questions, which is largely around why you want to do this. Uh, so what we are looking at in the CV is uh, how you have done wherever you have been uh, in your life, right? Right. Uh, uh, it does not matter which college, it does not matter which this thing, but how have you done there? How have you made use of the opportunities that you got in life? So that's one thing. It could be through academics, it could be through extracurriculars, it could be through uh, co-curricular activities and so on. It could be your performance at the place of work that you are in, uh, you are at earlier. Uh, so how are you doing wherever you are? So that's one thing that that's important. The second thing we try and gauge, which is sometimes not straightforward, is is drive. Uh, do you pick things and, and, and just keep on kind of dabbling into different things, or you, you, you there's a consistency in, in what you are doing. So you, if you like singing, have you taken it to the logical uh, uh, kind of this thing level? So drive is one thing that we that we look at, and of course from your SOP, we are really seeing whether you're looking at it as another job, or this is something that is you're really passionate about and you want to contribute. So, so that's on the first uh, stage. Second stage is the written, what you're referring to, which we call a concept note, where we give a problem statement and you're expected to, uh, uh, in a time-bound activity of an hour, hour and a half, you capture uh, your uh, uh, response to that. There we are looking at two things. We are looking at your uh, basically written communication and within that, how structured your flow of thoughts are. So structuring in written communication is specifically something that we that we look at. Uh, Structure is very important in in everything that we do here. And and that's what we are checking there. And the second thing is your ability to think practically because whatever solutions you're proposing, whatever you are ideating, uh, uh, it has to be grounded in certain uh, uh, practical uh, reality. So these are two things we look at in the concept note. Uh, The third thing then comes the telephonic interview uh, where we also do a small mini case discussion uh, uh, and and some personal discussion. Is it a uh, bit like the McKinsey case? Uh, I would say that is more in the final in-person rounds where we okay. do more longer cases, uh, which is like a consulting case. But the problem statements that we choose there are from our pieces of work. So from the work engagements that we have done, we pick up problem statements from there. Uh, but yes, what we are looking for is structuring. What we are looking for is kind of depth of thinking, what you're looking for again the practical part becomes important in our case what's your judgment what's how do you are you think able to think practically uh, uh, or it is more bookish that's one important thing uh, and of course oral communication because as you do the case you're kind of constantly engaging uh, so your presence in oral communication also becomes important in the final round
0: got it um yeah. uh, this is super helpful um once people get hired into the organization uh, what are some measures that you invest in mentoring them or uh, investing yeah. in them to do good work?
1: Yeah. So that's our biggest focus actually. Last two, two, two to three years, that's been the biggest uh, focus area internally is how do we uh, nurture talent within uh, and how do we do professional development of our colleagues? So a uh, big focus area. We do three things uh, there. Uh, one is we have a very well-defined what we call a professional development framework. So, at every level uh, in the organization, there are clearly defined quote unquote competencies that one is expected to uh, kind of have. So, something like having a difficult conversation with a senior government official is one competency. So as a consultant, or as a manager, or as an associate, you have a list of competencies that you expected to know. And there, uh, there's a regular fortnightly and monthly discussions that you have with your manager, with your program owner, to identify certain competencies. And then opportunities are created for you within the program, within the engagement that you are on, where you can own those comp- uh, competencies. So that's, And then you track it over a period of time. You track your own uh, uh, journey. So that's one bit. There's a very, very structured professional development process. The second is more formal trainings, which we have increased over the last uh, year and a half, two years, uh, mm-hmm. which is around leadership, which is around specific skills and so on. Uh, so there are various forums within the within the firm where we kind of do that. And the third and the most important is you're never in your comfort zone. Right? If you if you feel that you kind of cracked something and you kind of start to be becoming comfortable, you're automatically kind of kicked up in some ways and given the next responsibility. So there's a performance appraisal, which is six monthly, takes care of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're constantly identifying talent and really giving them responsibility probably sooner than they feel that they are ready for it uh so these are the three broad mechanisms that helps us grow talent from within we are very also very clear uh, that we want to build an organization where people are growing uh, internally as opposed to getting a large number of lateral hires at a senior level
0: right that's quite refreshing to know uh just my final couple of questions on the corona crisis uh how has work changed for you today and uh, are you doing uh, something interesting with some stakeholders in these difficult times so answer one from your own organization standpoint how is work there and then second how's your organization being able to do its uh, impact work with stakeholders
1: yeah yeah so uh... Definitely, there's an impact uh, of Corona. So, of course, all of us working from home uh, uh, in these times. uh, So, in each of our engagement, we have actually had a relook at our uh, impact strategy. Uh, So, be it agriculture with farmers, be it uh, skill development, be it education, be it anything. Uh, And all of these things, we've taken a step back and said, okay, schools are not going to open over the next two months, at least till the summer vacations. So, how do we uh, re-strategize and relook at some probably... uh, learning from home solutions etc which were never part of the plan but we now we kind of focus on them while we continue to push on things that were part of the original plan so there's a there's a step back and re-strategizing on almost every engagement that's one uh the second uh, bit is specific work related to covid so the states that we are uh, active in so we are right now working on nine transformation programs across four states and government of india uh, and cutting across some six domains. So the states that we are deep in, like Haryana, Odisha, and so on, there we are providing specific COVID-related support to these state governments. And in addition to that, we have also actively working with the government of India in managing uh, some aspects of this entire lockdown. So that's a little confidential, not shareable, but but uh, 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 but we are actively engaged. So that, that's where we actually physically go and work from even in this, uh, uh, in this period. So that's on what we are doing during this uh, COVID. But in terms of as an organization, I think a lot more engagement. We have kind of productivity levels are pretty high. We constantly do a pulse check of the teams. The uh, town hall frequency has gone up instead of monthly, it's become fortnightly. Uh, there's a lot of things that we're doing uh, to kind of keep the teams cheerful uh, uh, and engaged uh, during this time. I think we are, I would say, almost close to 100% productivity so far. Uh, 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 and of course, if it continues for long, we'll see a dip there. But so far, it's been kind of coming along well. Uh, wonderful. Um, Gaurav, do you find time to unwind, relax? If so, how do you do so? Yeah, so I'm a... Uh, so the three, three kind of interests that I always had, one is just... Uh, uh, reading and and, uh, uh, this thing a lot around politics and governance so that's one thing that has now become Mm -hmm. the uh, uh, profession so it kind of ties along well it 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 happens naturally the other was around uh, uh, traveling uh, which has gone down significantly and i don't see that kind of picking up again with this covid situation anytime soon and the third i'm a big foodie uh, and that's another thing that i manage to continue to do uh, with all the heavy lifting at some because you have to do so many meetings and meet and do so many interactions that you can always kind of figure out time to do it outside of office and outside of this thing so uh, those are things that i that i do but uh, another thing here is that once you there's not something that that's been forced on me right this is something that i'm doing out of my own passion so when that's the case and then you would also utkarsh uh, identify with this when you're doing something out of your own passion then and there's a very uh, thin boundary between work and and uh, and leisure uh, and that's uh, that's the case with me <laughs>
0: <laughs> totally gaurav this was such a pleasure uh, thank you so much for your time um, this has been a, a fascinating conversation a very useful podcast for a lot of our listeners appreciate your time and i'd also like to take a moment to tell you about our recently launched group offering so we've now so far we were largely b2c But Mm -hmm. just yesterday night, we've also launched our uh, community for uh, enterprises or B2B model. Mm -hmm. So we'd love to explore some of uh, this with organizations such as yours. But keep doing the fascinating work that you're up to and uh, look forward to meeting you soon and sharing a meal after COVID.
1: Sure. Thanks a lot, Utkash. My pleasure. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Talk soon. Bye.
1: Bye.